From Washington, D.C., you are listening to Rule of Law Albania with Albi Cela. Hello, everyone, and welcome to this new episode of Rule of Law Albania. My name is Albi Cela, and I'm your host. And my guest speaker today is a current professor of mine here at Arizona State University, Professor Larry Garber, he's teaching uh, US and international elections law here at Arizona State University. But what's worth mentioning is that he has 35 years of expertise, of experience um, in elections. Professor Garber, thank you for being with me here today. Pleasure to be here. So Professor Garber, just before we jump in, I'll give you a short uh, background of Albania elections uh, in Albania. Actually, we don't have a long tradition on elections. Actually, uh, next year is going to be the anniversary of the first ever uh, held elections in Albania. So the first elections were held in 1921. And then uh, up to 1943, let's say we had democratic elections, like for the time back then, it, they were considered as democratic. There were several parties, several people uh, running for elections. And then starting from 1945 to 1990, we were a communist country, communist regime. We had elections, but everything was fictitious, of course. There was only the Communist Party. They had no opponents, so that's how it worked. And then we have the first democratic elections again in 1991. And since then, elections have run every four years, like, like they usually do uh, across the planet. Uh, but of course, they were not as democratic as we would like them to be. The reports of the OSC and other international bodies haven't been so good. Corruption, everything, vote prodding. Etc. So we still have a lot of issues uh, with regard to elections. The other thing is that in only 30 years post-communism, we have changed the electoral code eight times, which is a lot. So every party, whenever they won the elections, they came to power, they changed uh, the electoral code or they changed the administrative division uh, of the country. And that's the, the current government, that's what they did. First of all, in 2015, they changed the admi administrative division uh, code. So it's a, it's a gerrymandering practice that they did. Basically, they did gerrymandering. And now um, they changed the electoral code. We talked about them previously together. So the changes, th there are three main changes. They basically, let's say, prohibited, maybe not prohibited uh, per se, but they banned uh, pre-election coalitions. They lowered the threshold uh, to enter the parliament from 3%. They made it 1%. And they also changed the list. So first I would like to start, um, let's start with the threshold. So isn't it weird that a government unilaterally changes the electoral code and lowers the threshold? Um, practice around the globe indicates that usually they try, they tend to hire the threshold. So what is this lowering the threshold? What does it mean in terms of uh, international practice with regard to election law? The first thing that, that I'd say is, is that every uh, country that, that uh, adopts a, a new constitution obviously goes through a uh, process where, you know, it reflects on what it just did. And, and so, you know, there's often pressures to make changes one way or another in the constitution or in the election law. Sometimes they're designed to um, correct mistakes that were made. Um, drafting the constitution or the election law. You know, a good example that I like to uh, use is the United States where we 
adopted an election in law in our constitution for the president. And after the first two elections realized that it was seriously flawed because the, the, the people who drafted it didn't realize what they were doing in effect. And so within 12 years, we had our first uh, election related constitutional amendment to change uh, you know, the uh, system for electing the president. Uh, it wasn't a major change, but it was a significant change. So, um, you know, so the, the number of changes as you described uh, in Albania, it seems excessive to have eight changes in 30 years. Uh, but some of them may have been due to, you know, what I will call mistakes, and some of them may have been due to, you know, the reality of political uh, party domination, uh, trying to get, you know, an electoral advantage for one side or another. Uh, specifically related to the threshold, um, you're absolutely right. The, the trend has been to raise the threshold to prevent small parties from uh, you know, which don't have much support around the country from entering uh, the parliament. Um, and so uh, to avoid, you know, having extremists or, uh, as I said, uh, parties that, that, that don't have much broad support. Um, is it anti-democratic? No, I mean, you can make an argument on democracy grounds that, you know, every voice should have a, uh, you know, a, a say in parliament. And so bringing down the threshold is more uh, democratic than increasing the threshold. But, but again, the, the tradition or not the experience over the last several decades has been in favor of raising thresholds. Um, the example of a, a country that I would use that had a 1% threshold uh, and over time decided to raise it uh, is Israel, which has a 120-person uh, parliament, and from its uh, inception until about the 1990s, had a one percent uh, threshold, which meant that you know extreme parties or even parties that were one-person party, uh, where the person wanted to get into parliament to avoid uh, being extradited to claim immunity from extradition, uh, was allowed and happened. Uh, and so eventually they've raised the threshold from 1% uh, to 2.5 to 3%. And it's had the result of either um, eliminating extremist parties that run by themselves that don't meet the threshold. Uh, and then the votes are wasted in effect or forcing these parties to enter coalitions with other small parties so that they can you know, get uh, above the threshold. And again, uh, you know, just to use that as an example, uh, to use the same case, Israel. So there were, um, the threshold was raised and the intent many believe was to eliminate um, the Arab minority parties from, uh, from receiving representation in the parliament because none of them, there were several of them and none of them would receive the uh, requisite uh, amount to cross the threshold. What it did was it forced these parties to run together as a coalition. And it turned out that, you know, by running together, they became uh, the third largest party uh, in the parliament. And then when the two largest parties formed the coalition, they became the largest, the second largest party in the parliament. So they're the, at this point, main opposition. So it, in that case, it had, you know, what we would call unintended consequences. 
but but like I said, the general trend has been to raise the threshold around the globe. But in the case of Albania, it looks like the government is doing this um, to steal votes from the opposition. So they hope that people will run on their own, especially people that have left the rank the ranks of the opposition. Because there are a couple of former MPs of the Democratic Party, which is now in the opposition, they have left the party because uh, they don't like the leader of the current party. So they they now have a higher chance to get elected and to take a seat in the parliament. But knowing them, they would take votes from the opposition, from the Democratic Democratic Party, which means they would steal steal votes from the Democratic Party. They will take the seat, and then it would be easier for from the government for the government to let's say manipulate these individuals within the parliament. So I believe that's the main reason that um, the government has done this, this move for. You, you, you may be right. I don't know enough about the intricacies of Albanian politics at this point, despite your trying to educate me. Um, but, um, you know, again, I, I mean, one has to draw a distinction between, you know, what's clearly uh, undemocratic you know, illegal under various human rights conventions and the like, and what simply is, you know, politics played out on a, uh, you know, on the on the national scene, and so, you know, that may be a perfectly, uh, you know, valid, credible explanation of why the government did it, and it still might be, you know, perfectly legitimate for them to have taken that, not, you know, legal for them to have taken that step. So. You know the response has to be, you know, that the opposition parties have to one uh, mobilize their supporters to go out and vote. They have to be able to uh, ensure that you know um, they can offer the the small parties, you know, uh, something that that they want in terms of uh, coalition formation. Um, and then if they, you know, believe that this is sincerely a uh, ploy, uh, they obviously can change the election law uh, when they come to power. Yeah, let's hope so. Which, 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 which would, you know, would be one more change of the election law, which isn't healthy, but, but again, is, is part of the process. Yeah. Uh, and then the second change they made is in terms of the coalitions. So let's say they, they banned pre-elections coalitions. So if two parties want to run together, they can't run separately. They have to um, submit a list that includes all the candidates from both parties, but people can vote only for the coalition, not the respective parties. I know this is not undemocratic, this move, but still it would make coalitions pretty hard because of course the parties have also uh, individualistic aims. Besides overthrowing the government, they also want as, many seats possible on their own without the other party coalition. Right. So this is another move that the government is trying not to allow, let's say, parties to run separately, but at the same time as a coalition. Uh, you know, to, to be honest, um, you know, this, this, I think, really does play into uh, the intricacies of Albanian politics. There's generally a divide between um, systems that encourage pre-election formation of coalitions and those that encourage post-election formation of coalitions. So, for example, you know, in the, in the 
United States. Um, you know, we encourage, you know, we have a two-party system. And so basically there, there's the emphasis on, you know, getting everyone to form a coalition before the election. Um, you know, so you have in the Democratic Party, you know, the different competing strands from, you know, Bernie Sanders to Joe Biden to, um, you know, Pete Buttigieg, whatever, and they all compete and then they form a coalition in effect before the election based on the outcome of the primaries. You know, in other places you have different parties competing, um, you know, for, you know, for seats and then based on the outcome, uh, they form a coalition. There's no right or wrong answer, you know, to which is better system. It often depends on the particular country. Um, but, you know, the idea that you're, you're, um, you're either encouraging or discouraging pre, you know, pre-election coalition formation doesn't seem to be a existential issue. It seems to be, you know, the parties, or in this case, the governing party, choosing what it thinks will help it the most and, you know, impact negatively on the opposition the most. But, but again, to me, there's a difference between, you know, what's, uh, you know, fair and uh, love and politics and what, you know, is clearly, uh, you know, crosses a threshold of uh, illegality or unconstitutionality. Um, and the last change they made is um, the elections list. So the opposition requested open list, 100% open list, so that people could choose the candidate they liked mm -hmm. from the list. And what the government did is they divided the list into two parts. So in the first part of the list, they rank the candidates they want, but it's a closed ranking. So however the right. party ranks them, that's how the ranking, the seats are going to be distributed. And then we have the second part of the list, which people can give liking votes for them. So people can um, vote for the party. And then if they want to exercise their right to like one of the candidates, they can. But at the end, the votes of the party are firstly distributed to the first part of the list. So it's the people in the first part of the list that take the seats first. And then if there, are other, if there are other votes or the persons in the second part of the list have more liking votes than the last person who won a seat in the first part of the list, then they can replace that person. But still, it's really difficult to break the ranks of the party list or the party ranking. So again, this is a matter of politics. Again, I know, but I want your opinion. What do you think about this? Well, again, uh, you know, many countries that use... Uh... PR list systems have closed lists and basically rely on the party and the internal structures, you know, which are often, um, you know, based on primaries or other forms to create the list. I mean, so that's not uh, unusual. Um, some party, some systems create exceptions where the party leader can push someone even over the, you know, democratic choices of, of, of the of the people. Here, it seems to me, you know, as an outsider looking at this objectively without understanding all the nuances of uh, Albanian politics, you know, the, 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 the change that has been made addresses in a minor way um, the concerns, you know, of the opposition for allowing some freedom of choice of the voter 
to like a particular candidate. But in practice, you know, will probably have limited effect because you have to have, you know, a lot of people liking lots of candidates for it to actually change, you know, the the rankings uh, that the party has come up with. But you know, the the typical um, practice is for the party to come up with, um, you know, the the list based on whatever rules the party has, uh, and usually it's not left you know, to the actual election uh, to restructure the entire list. So again, it, it, it might be uh, important from an Albanian political perspective to have completely open lists. Uh, but again, that's gonna require, I would guess the opposition to do very well in these elections or in a subsequent election and to change the election law, uh, you know, in that manner rather than uh, counting on the government to do so. The thing is that why we want it so much is because the current government in 2013, they included in the in their list people that apparently had criminal records and nobody knew because they didn't declare them. And that's what, let's say, we were scared of. We want at least to let's say, no investigate ourselves that... prior that we, we, we vote, investigate every candidate possible, and then pick up the one right. that we prefer the most. But again, just using your hypothetical I'll be, if you didn't know about it, you wouldn't be able to make a, a, an informed choice anyway. And if you did know about it beforehand, then, you know, the, <clears throat> the people should be prescribed from being included on the list, you know, in any event. So, so it seems to me the issue is more, you know, what do people know? Are they given the requisite information uh, before the election, which is critical? Um, but, you know, in your case, even if, if, if you had a ranked list and you didn't know who the criminals were, why, why would you pick or not pick a particular candidate? So, again, I mean, I think it's uh, from a <coughs> transparency perspective, the important part is that the information about the candidates should be released, you know, whether it's tax returns. Uh, you may have heard there's a big issue about that in the United States these days, um, um, or, you know, other- I'm sure uh, Albanians would forgive that. We're talking about <laughs> criminal records, like drug trafficking, <laughs> prosecution, et cetera. Right, but I'm just saying is even, even you know, in, in the United States, the tradition was to have your tax returns uh, released before the election, but there was no law requiring it. And, um, you know, many people say that the consequences we know less about you know, the candidate running for president who has not released uh, his tax returns in terms of, you know, who he might owe favors to or who he might owe money to, uh, you know, and so the argument has been made that it's critically important to do so, but it has to be enshrined in, you know, an election, uh, in, in, in a law in order to obligate the person to do so. Um, and I think the same thing is true you know, in, in the context of what you're talking about, there has to be some law that says um, candidates are required to, you know, release these types of information so that voters can better understand their character. And, uh, you know, and, and again, the, what you're really getting at is that in Albania, the, the judicial authorities uh, should have to, 
uh, review and clear uh, people before they're allowed to run, uh, you know. Now, now they are supposed to, but back then they, see the candidates lied, the judiciary didn't investigate properly on it, so. I'm saying, but those are broader governance faults that aren't gonna be, you know, rectified by simply giving people the ability to move people up and down a list. I understand. And then another big issue in Albania is the voting of the diaspora that has been discussed a lot lately. So yeah. unlike many other countries, Albania, the, the situation of Albania is really complicated because right now in Albania, we have 2.8 million people living there. And outside, we have at least 1.5 to 1.6 million citizens, not only diaspora, but citizens who are eligible to vote if, of course, they are 18 or more. Uh, and the thing is that there are many that are requiring, and me, myself, I would prefer to, to allow Albanians to vote from the country they are living in. Uh, and apparently the government is saying that, it, they're not saying that we don't want this, but they are not doing nothing um, about it. In the constitution, everyone is eligible to vote, every Albanian citizen. The only thing is that if I want to vote the next elections, I can from the United States, so I have to go back to Albania and cast my ballot. Uh, but what do you think? Would it be like, like for example, Americans can vote from every corner of the world they're in, right? And Albanians um, again, and we—it's a large number, and it would affect the political system a right. lot. So why shouldn't we vote from where we are? Well, the same reason you just raised can be made the opposite argument that that um, you know, given the numbers, I mean, the numbers, the United States. Uh, of people who live abroad, while significant, is not you know more than one percent of the total population. So, rarely will affect the actual outcome of uh, the election. And the argument is made that you know the the electorate should be the people who physically live in the uh, particular place um, where they're voting, and and therefore they should have to cast their ballots uh, physically in the, in those places. Um, and many countries, indeed many states in the United States, require people to, you know, be living uh, in, the, in the place where they live and to physically go and cast their ballots uh, in those places. And, and having, you know, as you said, 1.4 million um, eligible Albanians out of a population of 2.8 million, you know, means that the people, you know, I mean, you can imagine, uh, theoretically at least, that the 1.4 million Albanians can form the Albanian diaspora party, uh, get 50% uh, of the uh, votes, uh, and you'd have uh, you know, a prime minister sitting in Washington um, responsible for governing a country. So, so there, you know, there isn't um, you know, a right or wrong answer here, but I can certainly understand the concerns of, you know, Albanians living in Albania from wanting to allow, um, you know, a diaspora party or, you know, the diaspora as a whole uh, to have, um, you know, undue influence over uh, decisions that will directly impact well, There might be Albania. mechanisms which would limit the power of the diaspora, for example, it would be really easy to prescribe in the constitution that um, the members of the parliament, which represent the diaspora, let's say, they don't have the right to submit a motion to uh, remove the government. 
that would be a, a mechanism. But then you're, but then you're, again, you're you're distinguishing amongst members of parliament. You know, so some members of parliament have certain rights, other members of parliament have less rights, which you know raises its own issues. I mean, I could see a different solution, um, which I know some countries have used, which is to give um, the diaspora uh, a certain number of seats in parliament. So uh, the diaspora would elect, let's say, I mean, it's a big diaspora. So let's say even in this case, it would elect 10% of the parliament. So 10% of 140 would be 14 seats that would be elected by the 1.4 million Albanians. So it's not, you know, one person, one vote, but it is giving the diaspora representation in the Albanian parliament, um, but still under, you know, you know, so the, 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 the diaspora by itself can nowhere co uh, control the, uh, you know, the, the, who runs the government there. So that would be, I think, um, if, you know, if I were involved in designing the Albanian process, that's probably be where I would put my energy. And again, I'm just making up 10%, it could be 5%, it could be 12%. Um, well, actually, that's a practice. That, For example, in Croatia, it's, Croatia gives uh, a maximum of seven seats right. and then there's Italy 12 and then there's France again that has 12 seats yeah. for the diaspora so yeah so, so that to me is is more both common but also more practical I cannot see honestly where a, a country would allow you know potentially you know 30 40 percent of its parliamentarians uh, to be elected by a party that was based outside the country well, not a party, basically, but the people could still be eligible to vote. Also, existing parties in Albania, because they still do. I'm not saying. No, that... I understand that, but I'm just saying. Imagine the. Yeah. You know the extreme consequences. You say, okay, uh, we don't like any of the parties, or or there's you know a one you know a small party, in all in Albania, you know that has traditionally gotten one two percent of the vote. And they decide. And now to vote the diaspora for says, okay, let's all vote for that party. And all of a sudden they go from one or two seats to, yeah. you know, 30, 40 seats based on, you know, the diaspora vote. Um, you know, it, it, it shifts the dynamics considerably. And there are different perspectives. I mean, you're living in the United States, you know, have a certain set of interests. You may think those are, you know, relevant to um, Albanians' uh, national interests, but you know, clearly the people who are living in the country are directly affected by taxes, services, et cetera, et cetera. I understand. And then one last point here, which is related also to the diaspora, is the electronic vote. For example, the opposition has come up with this idea that it would be good if the diaspora could vote electronically, because basically they didn't trust the government to manage the vote of the diaspora. Right. I would think yeah. rightly so, knowing how the political situation is there. But what do you think about the electronic voting? Me myself, I'm skeptic. I don't, I don't like yeah. it personally. But what's your opinion on so that? So I think my uh, grandchildren are going to enjoy electronic voting. Um, but to be honest, I don't have any grandchildren yet. So we're at least 18 years away from, you know, universal electronic voting, even in a fairly developed country like the United States. I mean, it took a long time for us to move to. Um, mail-in voting in the United States. Um, and we now have five states 
out of 50 that use mail-in voting on a universal basis, uh, but most states don't. And so, um, you know, this year because of the pandemic, more states have expanded their mail-in voting. But uh, mail-in voting, uh, you know, there are more controls over it than electronic voting. Um, I think until we uh, can figure out how to deal with some of the issues relating to multiple voting, uh, hacking, et cetera, we, we, we're not ready for it. Um, now, again, we're going to probably see a couple of small countries that move quickly into electronic voting over the next few years. Um, and they'll provide, you know, lessons, I think, for all of us. Um, you know, and Albania may want to be at the, uh, you know, uh, leaders in that grouping, but um, my suspicion is that given um, where Albania is in terms of its progress, you know, in democracy, there are other priorities uh, that are much more important to put in place uh, to develop uh, before you move to any type of electronic voting. And Professor Lasley, speaking of democracy, um, it's been 30 years now post communism. We have had several elections, uh, local and general elections, and still it doesn't seem that we, we are democratic enough. We are still in a transition period. We are going, like if a couple of weeks ago, you gave me an assignment to read Sherry, Sherry Berman's book. And it, it enlightened me, to be honest. Uh, democracy and dictatorship in Europe. I understood how long it took, it, it takes for democracy to be established in a country. We see these post-communist countries like Hungary, Poland, uh, that it looked like they would become democratic immediately. It was fantastic. But look at Poland and Hungary now. It's... They have stepped back a lot. Maybe we haven't experienced that yet, but I'm afraid that we will experience the same fate as Hungary and Poland someday. Hopefully not. But what do you think? What, how can we get out, out of this turbulent situation, this vicious circle that we're in? Yeah. It's been 30 years. We are so excited. We, we, we want so much to be democratic, but we didn't put yeah. any effort after all. So again, I don't I, no uh, magic formula. Um, you know, obviously requires a lot of hard work from um, you know a range of uh, individuals, institutions in a country. Um, you know, civil society, the media, the judiciary, the legislature, uh, the political parties all have roles to play in creating the type of democratic culture that um, is essential for a democracy to survive and thrive. Um, and, you know, again, the international community, too, can play a role in monitoring and uh, calling uh, out some of the uh, problematic, uh, you know, um, developments in a country, whether it's Poland or Hungary or, or elsewhere. Um, it's important that people, uh, you know, remain patient. Uh, some of the progress is going to be slow. It's sometimes, uh, you know, not going to be, you know, just the straight trend line up. Uh, there may be some hiccups, uh, some caused by, you know, developments like pandemics, uh, some caused by malicious actors. Um, but, uh, you know, the important part is to, you know, keep the population, you know, with its eye on the prize. And the prize is to create a 
a democratic society that that benefits um, you know uh, the majority of the citizens you know on a regular basis so uh, again i'm is disappointed i was involved in the um, democratization processes in hungary in the 1990s 1990 and elsewhere in east and central europe and i've been disappointed that the progress hasn't been as uniformly uh, straightforward as i would have liked but um you know, I, I don't believe either Hungary or Poland have yet crossed the threshold where, you know, they're back where they were pre-1990. And, uh, you know, I'm happy to see that, you know, the international community is, you know, placing a spotlight on some of those uh, countries and the, and the, the negative developments there. And I would hope, you know, the same would be true in Albania if, if the circumstances warranted. So um keep the faith keep you know mobilizing uh folks keep doing programs like this to educate people about you know the rule of law uh and uh, aspects of it uh you know and remind people of uh you know some of the lessons from uh, sherry berman's book i'm going to quote something right now which struck me and i keep it on my mind now it's amazing she said that the road to democracy is not a sprint it's a marathon yeah it basically takes long. It's never ending. For me, the road to, to marathon doesn't have it to democracy doesn't have a finish. So yeah, we should and be I patient. Hope, uh, I hope your experience living in the United States and uh, you know taking this course uh, contributes to that uh, feeling too, that even in the United States, which you know has called itself a democracy for 230 years, uh, and has the experience of, you know, elections uh, happening every four years since uh, 1788, uh, you know, experiences also, uh, you know, impediments and obstacles and, you know, where people call into question our democracy. But exactly. we persevere and uh, hopefully you'll watch on November 3rd, uh, uh, once again, a successful uh, example of a, a democratic system functioning. Fingers crossed. Keeping my fingers crossed too. Professor, thank you so much for being with me. My pleasure. Me. I my really pleasure. appreciate it. See you tomorrow. All right. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.